0: Well, good morning. I'm Jerry Laterno, one of the elders here at uh, Community Covenant Church. And I want to wish everyone a happy Thanksgiving weekend. It's so nice to see people in the church building. And for those of you that are joining online, uh, we welcome you. Uh, this morning, as we enter into this Advent season, we're beginning a new series that we're titling The Thrill of Hope. And uh, just as we saw the Clifton family lighting the Advent candle just now, the Advent uh, wreath has been a tradition at CCC for many, many years. Uh, The word Advent is not such a common word for us. It's an old English word from the Latin adventus, meaning arrival. And of course, in this Christmas season, it refers to the church's celebration and the expectation of the arrival of Christ. The advent wreath with the four candles actually started in the Middle Ages and around the 1600s became very traditional for Catholics and Lutherans. Traditionally, each week, one of the candles, uh, one of the four candles is lit, symbolizing the expectation of hope uh, surrounding Jesus' first coming and the anticipation of his second coming. Each candle has its own theme. The first is, is hope followed by peace, joy, and then love. So in the tradition of this Advent wreath and season, we will consider each of these themes over the next several weeks. And in this first week, we will begin with hope, and uh, more specifically, what the Bible says about hope. So in our everyday conversation, it's very normal for us to say things like, I hope that you'll feel better, or I hope that the weather will be nice next weekend. This is a very normal way that we talk. We use the word hope as kind of a way of saying that we want something to happen, or a personal desire or a wish for something. There's no certainty that's connected with the word hope. It's simply a personal desire or a wish. But the word hope, as it's used in the Bible, is better understood as a confident, Expectation. If we were to know that someone was going to have a a medical procedure, a routine medical procedure, and that their doctor was the finest around, it would be consistent with the use of the biblical word hope for us to say, I hope that you will do well in the procedure. There's reasons for us to have a confidence in the outcome. It's a simple procedure, top-notch doctor, and so a positive outcome would be expected. This would be more in line with how the word hope is actually used in the Bible. It's not like crossing our fingers or rubbing our lucky rabbit's foot, hoping and wishing that something would come true. There's rationality behind the word hope, a reason for expecting a a positive outcome. It may be helpful for us to remember that most times when we see the word hope in the Bible, we could actually substitute the words confident expectation. It's been said that man can live about 40 days without food, about three days without water, about eight minutes without air, but only for one second without hope. We can wish for a better tomorrow, We can wish that there's a greater purpose for our lives. We can wish that this life is not all that there is and that there's something beyond the grave for us. But wishful thinking falls falls very far short of confident expectation. We all do what's within our power to prepare as best we can for the future. No one who is a realist just would lie in their bed day in and day out and just wish for a better tomorrow, we don't. Instead, we go out and we do all that's in our power to prepare the best that we can for tomorrow's challenges. But as we all know, the most difficult of things that life brings are beyond our ability to control, and the ultimate of them is death itself. But beginning in Genesis and then throughout the Old Testament, God had promised that he himself would rescue and provide for mankind. That he would gather the people to himself and call them to be his very own children, members of his kingdom, and ultimately have them live with him for all of eternity. We can have this positive and confident expectation because God himself promised to provide for us in this life and in the life to come. This is the message of the Bible. Throughout the Old Testament, God repeatedly revealed to the people of Israel that he himself would provide a savior, his anointed one. The Hebrew word is Messiah. It's the official title of that central figure of Jewish expectation. In Greek, the word is Christos, meaning anointed one. The word Christ is synonymous with Messiah. For more than 2,000 years, the Jewish people waited in anticipation for the Messiah that had been promised to them. They put their hope, their confident expectation in the promise that God would deliver them and provide for them. Which brings us to our text for this morning. From Luke's Gospel, chapter two, I'm going to be reading Luke 2, 25 to verses 35. And in this context, we find that Mary and Joseph had brought the baby Jesus to the temple to fulfill the rites according to the Mosaic law. And I read, Now there was a man in Jerusalem called Simeon who was righteous and devout. Sovereign Lord, as you have promised, you now dismiss your servant in peace. For my eyes have seen your salvation, which you have prepared in the sight of all people, a light for revelation to the Gentiles and for glory to your people Israel. The child's father and mother marveled at what was said about him. Then Simeon blessed them and said to Mary, his mother, this child is destined to cause the falling and rising of many in Israel and to be a sign that will be spoken against so that the thoughts of many hearts will be revealed and a sword will pierce your own heart also. Let's pray for a moment. Father, as we, as we open up your text this morning, these words, We ask that your Holy Spirit would move within us and give to us a fresh excitement for the hope that we have in Christ. We pray that you would make us sensitive to what it is you may be saying to us, that you would be glorified. Amen. So Simeon had been waiting for his whole life in expectation of the Messiah, just as his fellow Jews had done for 2,000 years before him. There was this deep longing for God's deliverer to come. And now, living under the Roman occupation, the Jewish people were even more so looking forward to the Messiah. Few things to highlight from this passage as it relates to us this morning. I want you to see that in verse 25, Simeon was waiting for the consolation of Israel. There was this expectation of being consoled and comforted by God. Notice that in verse 26, he equates Messiah as being that consolation. The comforting consolation of God is found in a person, the person of Messiah. Isaiah 40 in verse 1 says, Comfort ye, comfort ye my people, saith the Lord. If you're familiar with Handel's Messiah this time of the season, these are the, this passage from Isaiah is how Handel opens up his work. In verse 30, Simeon says, For my eyes have seen your salvation. Notice again that the salvation of God is tied to a person. He identifies this small baby in his arms as being the salvation of God. And then lastly in verse 32, A light for revelation to the Gentiles. The salvation promised to Israel would also be revealed and made available to the Gentiles. That would be us. Those of us that are not Jewish would be Gentiles. The baby that Simeon held in his arms was, in fact, the glory of Israel. And what Simeon had waited for all of his life was not just wishful thinking. It was a hope, again, that confident expectation that God would fulfill his promises. Simeon took the promises of God to heart, believing that God would one day take those intangible promises, and actualize them in the real world. God blessed him and said to him that he would not die until he had seen the promise of Messiah become a reality. The promises of God became a reality. There is a danger that we have of compartmentalizing our spiritual life from the actual physical world that we live in. We slip into this trap of somehow separating our spiritual world from the, quote, real world that we live in. And we have to constantly remind ourselves that God's promises are real and that they truly apply to us in our everyday world. I attended a conference some years ago, and one of the speakers said something that I never forgot. He said, Do you really believe that what you believe is really real? In other words, do the things that you hold true in your Christian faith actually translate into your everyday real world? Do they impact the way that you think, the way that you live, or how you look at life? The Bible records actual events that occurred in human history. The life and the events of Jesus actually happened. Jesus was a real person that lived in first century Palestine. There was a a movement in the 19th century in Protestant liberalism to kind of de-emphasize the historical Jesus. But then around the 20th century, there was a resurgence in the study of the historical Jesus. And today, there are no credible scholars who would deny that Jesus was a historical person. In fact, there are a dozen or so non-biblical writings from that period that mention Jesus. And here are just three of those. In AD 115, Tacitus, a Roman historian, wrote of Jesus' death at the hands of Pontius Pilate as occurring during the reign of Tiberius. A Roman administrator named Pliny the Younger wrote in A.D. 112 of having to deal directly with Christians who would sing hymns to God, uh, would sings, sing hymns to Christ as a God. Josephus was a Jew that worked for Rome as a historian, and in A.D. 93 he wrote the history of the Jews. And in his work, he mentions Jesus on two separate occasions, one at some length. So Jesus was truly a historical person. But can we have confidence that he was this promised Messiah that Simeon had waited for? One of the most astounding things about the Bible is its prophetic nature, where God reveals things about future events. This he does to validate that the Scriptures are, in fact, supernaturally inspired. Jesus said as much in John 14, when he told his disciples of the things that he was about to suffer, and then he said to them, and now I have told you these things before they come to pass, so that after they come to pass, you might believe. Sometimes biblical prophecy has like a dual nature, in that they address maybe an event of that day, but also contain a foreshadowing or a type that points to some future event in God's plan. The Jewish temple and and much of the Levitical law was exactly this. It served a purpose in its day, but was really foreshadowing a future and ultimate fulfillment. At other times, prophecy will just simply stand on its own and declare some future event in God's plan. In his work, The Encyclopedia of Biblical Prophecy, J. Barton Payne, addresses over 8,000 predictive verses in the Bible. Of these, he lists 126 of the Old Testament prophecies that pointed to the coming of Messiah, all of which were fulfilled by Jesus during his lifetime. It was these Old Testament prophecies that Simeon believed in and was hoping for Now this may be familiar to many of you but for some it may be the first time that you're exposed to this unique and amazing fulfillment of biblical prophecy. I'd like to mention just a few of these messianic prophecies for you. That Jesus would be conceived by a virgin and would be called God. Isaiah writing some 700 years before Jesus was born wrote, Therefore the Lord himself will give you a sign. The virgin will conceive and give birth to a son and will call him Emmanuel. Luke in chapter one writes, the angel said to her, do not be afraid, Mary, you have found favor with God. You will conceive and give birth to a son and you are to call him Jesus. How will this be, Mary asked, the angel answered, how will this be, Mary asked, since I am a virgin? The angel answered, the Holy Spirit will come on you, and the power of the Most High will overshadow you. So the Holy One to be born will be called the Son of God. That Messiah would be born in Bethlehem. Micah, the prophet Micah, writing again some 700 years before Jesus was born. But you, Bethlehem ephrath though you are small among the clans of Judah, Out of you will come for me one who will be ruler over Israel, whose origins are from old, from ancient times. Of Jesus' birth, Matthew wrote, after Jesus was born in Bethlehem in Judea, during the time of King Herod, Magi from the east came to Jerusalem. That he would be from Galilee. Isaiah again. In the past, he humbled the land of Zebulun, the land of Naphtali, But in the future, he will honor Galilee of the nations by the way of the sea, beyond the Jordan. The people walking in darkness have seen a great light. Matthew records in chapter 4, When Jesus heard that John had been put in prison, he withdrew to Galilee. Leaving Nazareth, he went and lived in Capernaum, which was by the lake in the area of Zebulun and Naphtali, to fulfill what was said through the prophet Isaiah that Messiah would enter Jerusalem as a king, riding on the colt of a donkey. Zechariah, some 500 years before Jesus. Rejoice greatly, daughter Zion. Shout, daughter Jerusalem. See your king comes to you righteous and victorious, lowly and riding on the donkey, on a colt, the foal of a donkey. The fulfillment of this in Matthew 21, As they approached Jerusalem, they brought the donkey and the colt and placed their cloaks on them for Jesus to sit on. The crowds that went ahead of him said, the crowds that went ahead of him and those that followed shouted, Hosanna to the Son of David. And lastly, of the ones that we'll look at this morning, Messiah's hands and feet would be pierced, they would divide his clothes and gamble for his garment. Psalm 22, written more than a thousand years before Jesus was born. Dogs surround me. A pack of villains encircles me. They pierce my hands and my feet. All my bones are on display. People stare and gloat over me. They divide my clothes among them and cast lots for my garment. John, writing of Jesus' crucifixion. When the soldiers crucified Jesus, they took his clothes, dividing them into four shears, one for each of them, with the undergarment remaining. This garment was seamless, woven in one piece from top to bottom. Let's not tear it, they said to one another. Let's decide by lot who will get it. This happened that the scripture might be fulfilled. What's amazing about all of this, Old Testament writings, is that they were written more than 500 years before Jesus was even born. If you've never done so, I encourage you someday to read Psalm 22. The parallels to Jesus' crucifixion will jump out at you. But the remarkable thing is that crucifixion was not invented about until some 800 to 1,000 years after Psalm 22 was even written. In their work, Science Speaks, authors Peter Stoner and Robert Newman write that the probability of just eight of these 126 prophecies being fulfilled in a single person is about one chance out of 10 to the 17th. That's about one chance of, out of one with 17 zeros following it. Even if the odds were... 10,000 times better than this, it's still a staggering number. And that would be to fulfill just 8 out of the 126. Fulfilling all 126 could only be the divine act of God. And all 126 were fulfilled in the life of Jesus. The Bible is written by 39 different authors over the period of maybe 1500 years. And yet, there is one common theme throughout, as if written by a single author. And that theme is that God would provide deliverance for mankind. And that deliverance is found in Jesus Christ. This is the hope of God's people. All of what we have looked at involves Jesus' first coming. But just as with the first coming, There are also more than a hundred Old Testament prophecies, and some prophecies even from Jesus himself about his second coming, the final judgment, and the full establishment of his kingdom here on earth. Some of those prophecies include that Christ will return visibly, and every eye will see him. A great trumpet will sound, and at the voice of Christ, the dead will be raised. There will be a final judgment to determine the eternal destiny of all men. Satan and his demons will be condemned. There will be a great marriage feast for Christ and his church. Messiah will be eternal, and God will rule his people forever. And just as the people of Israel waited for 2,000 years for the fulfillment of the coming of Messiah, so also has the church waited 2,000 years for his second advent. But be sure that just as all of the prophecies of Christ's first coming were fulfilled, so one day will all of these also be fulfilled. Seeing how God fulfilled all of the Old Testament prophecies in Jesus gives us a confident expectation, a hope that these prophecies of his second coming will also come to pass. And so, here we find ourselves in what is commonly referred to as the church age, between Christ's first coming and the hope of his second coming. And as we saw in our study when we did the Beatitudes, at his first coming, Jesus ushered in the kingdom of God through his death and his resurrection. He opened up the way for men and women to become citizens of his kingdom. The kingdom of God is not yet established in its fullness on earth. This will happen at his second coming. But in this in-between, this church age, the kingdom of heaven is in conflict with this world. The kingdom ruled by Satan, who Jesus called the prince of this world. Chris spoke last week from Ephesians 6, that our battle is not against flesh and blood, but against rulers, against the authorities, against the powers of this dark world, against the spiritual forces of evil in the heavenly realms. We find ourselves in what is sometimes called the already, but not yet, where the kingdom of God is here, but not yet in its fullness. And here it is that we live, as we learn and struggle with how to live as kingdom citizens in the midst of a corrupt and evil world. But we do so with the hope, again, that confident expectation that in Christ we are victorious. The prophecies of Jesus and their fulfillment of them is just one of many, many evidences that we have, not only for the existence of God, but also the hope that we have in the His promises to watch over us and to provide for us and the assurance of eternal life with Him. It's because of this hope that we can have true peace and true joy. We're not just purposeless objects, victims in a cold and uncertain future, but the God who created all that is and controls all that is has rescued us He's brought us into his kingdom, called us his children, promised that he would provide for us, not only in this life, but in the eternal life that awaits us. We saw in our study in Ephesians, God's ultimate purpose is that all things would be united in Christ. This was God's plan from before the foundations of the world that he would send his son into the world to die on a cross and satisfy the divine justice of God. And for those who trust in Jesus as both Lord and Savior, they are in Christ, just as the Father had planned. And it's only here, when we're here, when we recognize that Christ is our hope, our confident expectation that the words of Paul in Romans 8 really start to make sense to us. For I am convinced that neither death nor life, neither angels nor demons, neither the present nor future, nor any powers, neither height nor depth, nor anything else in all creation will be able to separate us from the love of God that is in Christ Jesus our Lord. The hope that we have in Christ applies in this life, but it also applies for the life beyond this world. In John 14, Jesus said, Let not your hearts be troubled. Believe in God, believe also in me. For in my Father's house there are many rooms. If it were not so, would I have told you that I go to prepare a place for you? And if I go to prepare a place for you, I will come again and take you to be with myself that where I am, there you may also be." I want to, once again, impress on you that the entire Bible has one thread that runs throughout. That God would provide a savior for mankind. One who would reveal God's kingdom and invite men and women into that kingdom where he would be their king and also their priest who represents them before the very throne of God. This is God's ultimate purpose. That all things, all things will be reconciled to himself in the Savior, the promised Messiah, Jesus Christ. I remember, as an early Christian, one of the songs that we used to sing, I often think the, the lyrics, which say, because he lives, I can face tomorrow. Because he lives, all fear is gone. Because I know he holds the future, and life is worth the living, just because he lives. Our hope, our confident expectation, is in Jesus Christ. This message is a message of great hope for all of us who are in Christ. And it's also a message of great hope for anyone who would come to Christ in repentance and brokenness desiring to be right with God. Paul wrote to the Roman church that if you confess with your lips that Jesus is Lord and believe in your heart that God has raised him from the dead, you will be saved. If you've never made that decision, I encourage you to do so. Do you want to be assured that Christ has prepared a place for you? I encourage you in your own words and in your own quiet time, To ask Jesus to reveal himself to you. Ask him to be your Lord and Savior. Let's pray. Our Father, we pray that these thoughts of the coming of Messiah, the fulfillment of those promises, our expectation, and the advent and the hope of Christ's second coming, we pray, Lord, that these truths would give us a boldness to be a witness for you, to be a light that shines wherever we go. We pray, Lord, that because of these truths, that the peace and the joy that is ours in Christ would fill our hearts, transform us, and make us new people. Father, we pray this that you would be glorified. We pray it in Jesus' name. Amen.